So welcome everybody. Um, today we have uh, Hilary Graves from the University of Oxford. Um, Hilary is also a fellow of Somerville and as you know her work is in ethics very broadly construed. She's interested in foundational issues in consequentialism and also in the relationships of ethical issues with epistemology and particularly with problems of population. She's the director of a project in Oxford about population ethics as well. So today, um, Hilary is going to talk to us about cluelessness. So Hilary, I'll just leave you to it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay. So the basic issue of cluelessness goes like this. According to any plausible moral theory, whether or not it's a consequentialist moral theory, considerations of consequences have to be at least one very important part of the overall moral story, both for the purposes of moral decision-making for a morally conscientious agent and also for the purposes of evaluation by some third party. There's then a worry which goes something like, maybe we can never have an adequate grasp or an adequate ability to predict what the consequences of our actions will be. If so, or rather if this is the case to a sufficiently dire extent, then this is a very bad um, problem whether or not you're a consequentialist. If you're a consequentialist and considerations of consequences are, according to your theory, the sole determinants of the moral status of actions, then insofar as we're clueless about consequences, we're clueless about the moral status of actions, and so we're not well-placed to use them for decision-making or for evaluation. If you're a non-consequentialist, but you're a plausible kind of non-consequentialist, that is, you're the kind of non-consequentialist who wants to take considerations of consequences into account, then the cluelessness worry threatens to reduce you in practice to the implausible kind of non-consequentialist who in practice completely ignores all considerations of consequences. So this talk is about the extent to which this cluelessness phenomenon creates trouble. In the first section of the talk, I'll talk about cluelessness with respect to objective betterness, that is roughly the extent to which we're clueless about which of two actions will actually have better consequences. Here I'll argue that we are in a situation of cluelessness. However, I'll further suggest that this isn't a problem. The reason I'll be arguing it isn't a problem, moving now to section two, is that I don't think we're in a situation of cluelessness with respect to the subjective betterness of actions with respect to consequences. This is more or less a standard line, especially from consequentialists, to think about subjective expectation values of consequences rather than actual consequences. James Lenman, in an influential paper from 2000, objects to this line of thought with an objection related to the principle of indifference. So in section three, I'll say why I think Lenman's mistaken there. Then from section four onwards, we get into the much sketchier section of the talk. What I'll be suggesting in section four is that although the kinds of situations that have mostly been discussed so far in the cluelessness literature I don't think lead to problems. That's what I will have argued so far. I do think there's a new kind of situation of an importantly different character from the ones that are normally discussed, with respect to which matters seem to stand in a very different way. I think there's a much more genuine threat of cluelessness in these so-called new problem cases that I'll be introducing. If so, then the problem of cluelessness is real in at least some cases, and in that case it would be nice to have a more precise theoretical account, both in terms of epistemic rationality and in terms of practical rationality. Um, concerning what's actually going on, what's the right theoretical description 
of the situation of a clueless agent. So that's what I'll start to attempt in section 5. Section 6 is there to cast doubt on what I say in section 4, and 7 is my conclusions. Okay, so first of all then, cluelessness about objective betterness. Now, if I was willing to presuppose maximising consequentialism as a premise of my talk, I'd start talking now about the consequentialist standard criterion of the objective rightness of actions. I want to take a more theory-general approach than that. So instead of doing that, I just want to stipulatively introduce some terminology here. Say that one action is objectively see better than another, objectively better with respect to consequences, if and only if the consequences of A1 are better than those of A2. So that's just a definition. Given this terminology, we can then state our first cluelessness worry. So cluelessness worry sub O for objective. This worry is the claim that we can never have even the faintest idea, in some sense, for any given pair of acts A1 and A2, whether or not A1 is objectively C better than A2. Why worry that that might be true? The basic worry has to do with the unforeseeable consequences of one's actions. So the thought is, in practice, finite creatures that we are, whenever we're contemplating a decision between two actions, we necessarily take into account only a very small portion of their consequences, their direct consequences, their foreseeable consequences, their consequences over a relatively short space of time. But of course, the world being causally structured the way it is, the consequences of our actions stretch on until the end of time. They stretch on down the millennia. There are many more consequences of any actions we take than the ones that we actually take into account in any realistic calculation. If that's so, then we can be confident that the calculations we actually carry out in practice are good guides to objective C-betterness between actions, only insofar as we can be confident that if we were to do that grand calculation that took all consequences into account, the result of doing so would not be to reverse the judgments of objective C-betterness that we reach based on our limited calculation alone. That is, we can be confident in the reliability of our actual calculations only insofar as we can be confident that this non-reversal condition obtains, so non-reversal sub O for objective. Okay, so if we're justified in assuming this condition, then this would get rid of our first cluelessness worry. So the million dollar question at this point in the talk is, to what extent can we, can we be confident in any given case that this non-reversal condition actually obtains? Okay, so I don't think we can at all. I don't think we can be at all confident that the non-reversal condition obtains. To argue this, I want to consider two ways one might try to argue for the opposite conclusion, so two ways one might try to argue for non-reversal. And in the process of seeing what's wrong with both of, both of those arguments, I think we'll also see why actually we don't have any good reasons. It's not plausible to assign even particularly high probability to the non-reversal condition. So the first way you might try to argue for non-reversal is via the so-called ripples on the pond postulate. The basic idea here would be Yes, okay, it's true that for any action I undertake, there are causal consequences stretching down through the millennia, but we postulate, ripples on a pond, that as time goes on, as, as you get more and more remote in time from the time of action, the magnitude of these consequences gets smaller and smaller. If so, then we might hold out hope that when we do our actual calculations, we take into account foreseeable consequences over a short stretch of time that's close in time to the time the action was taken, we've already taken into account, even in aggregate, the largest part of the consequences. So here's GE Moore 
floating an idea like this. To be fair, Moore isn't strongly arguing for this point of view, but what he is saying is that something like this had better be the case if we're not to be in, a, in deep trouble with respect to cluelessness. So Moore suggests, as we proceed further and further from the time at which alternative actions are open to us, the events of which either action would be part cause become increasingly dependent on those other circumstances which are the same whichever action we adopt. The effects of any individual action seem, after a sufficient space of time, to be found only in trifling modifications spread over a very wide area, whereas its immediate effects consist in some prominent modification of a comparatively narrow area. Since, however, most of the things which have any great importance for good or evil are things of this prominent kind, there may be a probability that after a certain time all the effects of any particular action become so nearly indifferent that any difference between their value and that of the effects of another action is very unlikely to outweigh an obvious difference in the value of their immediate effects. That is, it's very likely that the non-reversal condition will hold. Okay, unfortunately, this is on reflection not plausible. This is most easily seen by considering what we might call identity-affecting actions. So this is a line that's pushed forcefully in particular by James Lenman in the paper that I mentioned. And while I disagree with much of the rest of what Lenman says in that paper, I think he's right about this bit. So Lemon invites us to consider actions that affect the identities of persons born in the future. The most obvious cases of this, and the cases that Lemon focuses on mostly, are things like killings and abortions and procreative decisions. But in fact, as has been emphasised in a different context, that of population ethics, by Parfit, the class of identity-affecting actions is much wider than that. So to try and bring that point home, let me use a very mundane example. Suppose I'm deciding whether or not to stop on my way home from work to help an old lady across the road. If I do stop on my way home from work, then I affect the precise times at which both I and this old lady will be in any given location for the rest of our respective days. I also affect the time at which we each go to bed tonight, so I affect the time at which we each get up tomorrow morning, probably. And so there'll be similar consequences for the times at which we're in given places tomorrow. There will therefore be consequences of my decision about whether or not to help for which other people each of us bump into today, tomorrow, the next day, and so forth, which other people we delay on their way home from work, and so forth. And statistically speaking, it's overwhelmingly likely that at least some of these people that we thereby interact differently with were fated to conceive a child on the day in question. If so then we will have affected the identities of the child they conceive, because this is the thing that Parfit argues very forcefully. If you even delay the moment of conception by a few seconds, then it's overwhelmingly likely you will have affected which particular sperm meets with the egg, and so which particular child gets conceived. This now means that my decision about whether or not to help the old lady across the road has to count among, the causal consequence, among its causal consequences all the differences between the things that the actual child conceives does throughout the course of his or her life and the different things that the merely possible child that would otherwise have been conceived does in the course of his or her life. And there's no reason for thinking that those differences will get any smaller as time goes on. Okay, so for those reasons, the ripples on the pond postulate is on reflection, not plausible. The non-reversal condition can't be defended this way. There's a second way of defending non-reversal that you might try, appealing instead to what we might call the cancellation postulate. So here the idea would be, okay, let's, just, let's concede what I just said against ripples on a pond. 
let's acknowledge that for any individual effect of my actions, insofar as I can parcel them out into discrete individual effects, the differences don't get smaller as time goes on. However, it seems plausible that many of the effects of my actions will be more or less independent of one another. That is to say, if I decide to hold the, help the old lady across the road, there will be many small good effects of that action. There will also be many small bad effects of that action. And we might hold out hope that in the long run, these things will tend to cancel one another out. Clearly, they'll tend to cancel one another out to some degree. You might further hope that in the limit as time goes to infinity, they'll tend to cancel one another out sufficiently exactly to, um, to, that the non-reversal condition will hold. This is a nice thing to try. Unfortunately, when you reflect more carefully on how the maths works, it's just not correct as a matter of mathematics. So we can see this if, for example, we model a thing we're talking about in random walk theory. So here the idea is, think of a, a horizontal line with a good, good axis pointing this way and a bad axis pointing that way. We're basically talking about the case where we take a large number of steps. With probability a half, we take a step in the good direction, and with probability a half, we take a step in the bad direction on each step. But these steps are probabilistically independent of one another. Do that a very large number of times, and then ask yourself, in the limit as the number of steps goes to infinity, how far do you expect to be from your starting point? The cancellation postulate is saying, well, I expect with very high probability to be very close to my starting point after I've taken a large number of steps. Random walk theory tells us, in other words, when you do the maths, you see that that's just not true. When you take a large number of steps, you expect to be increasingly far from your starting point. You don't know in what direction, but you expect to be a long way away. So the cancellation postulate is not plausible. And on reflection, this is intuitively pretty clear when we think about identity affecting actions anyway. If my decision about whether to help the old lady across the road has among its consequences all the differences between the, the life of one possible child and the different life of another possible child, it's extremely unlikely that the different things these two different children do will, in the end, cancel one, an cancel one another out sufficiently precisely um, that the difference between the goodness of this life and the goodness of that other merely possible life ends up being smaller than the amount of goodness I do immediately in helping the old lady across the road. So intu on, in on intuitive reflection, it's, um, there's nothing counterintuitive about this result from random walk theory. Okay, so my interim conclusion at this point is that we have no justification for the non-reversal condition and indeed, there's no particular reason for thinking its probability is, great, is much greater than a half in any given instance. So I think the first cluelessness worry is just correct. We are pretty clueless about which of any two actions is objectively see better, objectively better with respect to consequences than the other. However, this would only be a problem, going back to the thoughts with which I started the talk, if it somehow followed from that, that we were unable in practice to take considerations of consequences into account in our moral decision-making and moral evaluation. And I don't think that follows because there's another way we might take considerations of consequences into account, namely by appealing to what I'll call subjective c-betterness rather than objective c-betterness. So the idea of subjective c-betterness is that we should take a leaf out of the book of expected utility theory and instead of just asking about the actual goodness of consequences, ask about the subjective, expect, subjective expectation value of the consequences of actions, where the expectation value is taken either with respect to the agent's own subjective credences or with respect to the evidential probabilities relative to the agent's evidence at the time she takes her decision. 
so let's carry on. <laughs> okay, alright, so we got to the end of section one where I concluded that we don't have any justification for assigning any particularly high probability to the non-reversal condition when we're talking about objective C-betterness and therefore the objective cluelessness worry is just correct. Um, is this problematic? According to me, no, and here's why. So section two, cluelessness about subjective C-betterness. Let's again stipulatively introduce some terminology. So now say that one act, A1, is subjectively C-better, better with respect to consequences, than another act, A2, if and only if the expected value of the consequences of A1 is higher than the expected value of the consequences of A2, where those expectation values are taken with respect to the, either the agent's credences or the evidential probabilities applicable to the agent at the time of decision. Now, corresponding to the cluelessness worry and the non-reversal condition that we had in the objective case, we have analogous conditions in the subjective case. So the cluelessness worry with respect to subjective C-betterness takes the form of the claim that we can ha never have the faintest idea for any given pair of acts, A1 and A2, whether or not A1 is even subjectively better than A2. So why would you think that obtained? You'd think that obtained if you thought that we had no justification for believing in the analogue of the non-reversal condition, even in the case of subjective C-betterness. So we want some assurance, in other words, when we do these limited calculations, taking into account only foreseeable consequences, that if we were to take into account the whole of the rest of the history of the universe, the result would not be to reverse the judgments of expected value of consequences that we reach based on our limited calculations alone. Okay, so now the question is, does this non-reversal condition hold with respect to subjective C-betterness? And I think that it does. So next slide now, defending NR sub S. So consider again that case of the old lady crossing the road. Sure, we can think of some possible causal stories according to which my helping the old lady cross the road leads to some unforeseeable bad consequences. For example, it has the result that, it has the indirect result that an additional Hitler gets born in the 22nd century. However, any possible story I could tell, for any possible story I could tell about how that might come about, there's going to be a precisely analogous and equally plausible causal story I could tell about how the opposite action could have turned out to have that effect. So we can think in terms of these correlation hypotheses between acts and unforeseeable effects. So let A1 be the action of helping the old lady across the road, let A2 be the alternative action of not helping, let E1 be the consequence that an extra bad person gets born next century. Let E2 be the consequence that they don't. It seems that our credence that if I did A1, then E1 would follow, and if I did A2, then E2 should follow, should be exactly the same as our credence in the switched-over act-effect correlation hypothesis, namely that if I did A1, then E2 would follow, and if I did A2, then E1 would follow. Those hypotheses seem exactly as plausible as one another. And for any agent who does assign equal credence to those two hypotheses, the unforeseeable effects that we're talking about will cancel out in expectation terms. So once we've started talking about the expected values of consequences rather than actual consequences, whenever this condition of equal credences holds, the unforeseeable effects will make zero contribution to the, the comparison of expected values between actions. And if they make zero contribution, then they, clearly they don't make enough contribution to reverse the comparison that I reach based on foreseeable consequences, and so the non-reversal condition is true 
for subjective sea betterness. So I think that's right, and for that reason, I think we don't have a cluelessness worry with respect to subjective sea betterness, and therefore cluelessness, at least so far as the kind of cases I've talked about so far are concerned, cluelessness doesn't generate any deep problem for consequentialist or non-consequentialist moral theorising. Okay, so now section three. Okay, I just want to talk briefly about what Lenman thinks is wrong with what I just said and why I'm not convinced by his objection. So Lenman is bothered by the fact that what I just said, which is not particularly original, many people have said things like this, Lenman is bothered by the fact that it presupposes a principle of indifference. So roughly the principle of indifference is the claim that if you've got some set of mutually exclusive propositions, and if there's a situation of evidential symmetry between these propositions, so this could happen either if you've got no information relevant to the question of which of these propositions is true, or if the information that you have got is precisely symmetric um, with respect to these propositions, it doesn't tell you anything more in favour of one of the propositions than the others, then you're rationally re required to assign equal credences to the propositions in question. And this seems like a very reasonable principle, at least in some cases, and at least at first sight. So, for example, if I tell you that I'm about to flip a coin, and that this coin is marked heads on one side and tails on the other side, and I tell you nothing else, so in particular, I don't tell you that it's a fair coin, I don't tell you that it's not a fair coin, I don't tell you anything about precisely how I'm going to flip it, but I have told you that it's marked heads on one side and tails on another. And now I ask you, what's your credence that this coin will land heads? It does seem that, at the very least, there's something a bit odd about you if you give an answer that's other than a half. It looks as though because anything that could be said in favour of heads has something precisely analogous that could be said in favour of tails, you should be assigning equal credences to these heads and tails propositions. So that would be an application of the principle of indifference. And it, Lemon is quite right that the reasoning I gave on the previous slide did appeal to some form of reasoning, some form of indifference reasoning like this, because... I insisted that if you're rational, then your credence, is, your credence in this first act-effect correlation hypothesis has to be exactly equal to your credence in the second alternative act-effect correlation hypothesis. But the only reason I gave you for insisting on that was that you were in a situation of evidential symmetry with respect to these two correlation hypotheses, that anything that could be said in favour of one had something precisely analogous that could be said in favour of the other. So unless I had some kind of principle of indifference lurking in the background, I wouldn't have been able to conclude that you're rationally required to have equal credences, and so I wouldn't have been able to conclude that for any rational um, creature, the subjective non-reversal condition holds. Okay, so I presuppose the principle of indifference. Why is that supposed to be a bad thing? It's supposed to be a bad thing because, as is well known to theorists of probability and philosophers of science, the principle of indifference in general, or a fully restricted principle of indifference, leads to paradox. Or to put it slightly more precisely, a fully unrestricted principle of indifference leads to inconsistent rational requirements. So here's an example to illustrate the basic problem. Suppose I tell you that I'm about to draw a book from my bookshelf and I tell you nothing else. So I don't tell you anything about what kinds of books are on my shelf or which shelf I'm going to pick it from or anything like that. I then ask you, what's your credence that this book is going to be read? It looks as though the principle of indifference is going to commit you to both of the following lines of reasoning. First line of reasoning, oh, well, look, there are two possibilities here. Either the book's read or it's not. 
and I have no information relevant to the question of which of those possibilities obtains, so I should have equal credence in the two. Therefore, I should have credence the half that the book has read. Second line of reasoning, however, well, there are perhaps five possibilities here. Either the book's red, or it's blue, or it's green, or it's yellow, or it's some other colour, and I've got no information relevant to the question of which of those five possibilities obtains, so I should have equal credence in all five, and in particular I should have credence one-fifth that the book has read. But if I'm rationally required to have credence a half that the book has read, and I'm rationally required to have credence a fifth that the book's read, then I'm subject to inconsistent rational requirements, and that just doesn't seem right. Now, you might think the problem here arises because I've applied a principle of indifference uncritically to partitions that aren't themselves particularly natural. These partitions into red or not red, or partitions into several colours, don't seem to have anything particularly natural to recommend them. But in fact, restricting a principle of indifference to natural par partitions, even if you're confident you know what you mean by that, won't solve the problem. We can come up with similar examples where all of the partitions we're talking about seem just as natural as do the partitions in cases where we intuitively find ourselves genuinely wanting to apply indifference reasoning. So the principle of indifference in general seems to be in trouble. And I think it's fair to say that the current consensus in the philosophy of science and probability literature is that this principle is just false. We just have to learn to live without it. Maybe, we, maybe what we should learn from this is that you can only get rationality constraints on credences from good, solid, empirical information like observations of relative frequencies or something like that. And Lenman is buying into this consensus when he says, if you can only avoid the cluelessness worry by appealing to the principle of indifference, then you can't avoid the cluelessness worry. Why am I not troubled by this, then? I'm not troubled because I think that completely rejecting any form of indifference reasoning in response to these paradoxes or demonstrations of inconsistent requirements amounts to throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There are lots of intuitive examples. For example, arguably, that case I gave you of flipping a coin and asking you whether what your credence is that it's going to land heads. There are lots of intuitive examples where it just does seem that failing to abide by a principle of indifference is irrational. Furthermore, this is not only the case in everyday reasoning, it not, it not only seems to be true, it's also at least arguably the case in much of scientific reasoning, and it seems to be very important that we're able to appeal to indifference reasoning in some, um, some areas of science. So I'm thinking in particular of things that are heavily based on statistical evidence. So take, for example, um, experiments in ethics where you carry out some test to find out whether your patient has tuberculosis or you carry out some randomised controlled, controlled trial in order to estimate the efficacy of some drug. In all of those cases, this is where I'm now I'm appealing to something slightly controversial. If you do your statistics in a Bayesian way, which I would argue is the right way to do your statistics for those cases, you're only ever going to get to where you want to get to. That is, you're only ever going to get to any opinion about what your credence should be after the experiment that your patient has tuberculosis or any credences about how, um, how effective the drug is if you are willing to plug in some prior. But the prior you're supposed to plug in in these statistical techniques is a so-called flat or uninformative prior, and that's just another word for a prior that obeys the principle of indifference. So if you're not willing to appeal to any kind of indifference reasoning in the scientific context, it looks as though you're just going to get nothing from all these expensive medical experiments. And at this point, it's clear that something's gone wrong. Too much has been thrown out. 
So here then is a slightly more optimistic view of the status of the principle of indifference. What we learn from the paradoxes is that the principle of indifference that we know how to state, the one that's easy to write down, is too general, it's too unrestricted. That form of principle of indifference can't be true. The paradoxes don't show us, however, that there can't be any true, consistent restrictions of the principle of indifference, and the intuitive examples seem to be strongly urging us to admit that there must be some true, consistent restrictions of the principle of indifference, even if we don't know how to formulate them. So I would be much more inclined to draw the conclusion that we haven't yet completed the enterprise of epistemology. There are some true principles that we don't yet know how to formulate, rather to conclude that even in the cases of these act-effect hypotheses that I was talking about, we're not, entitled, we're not entitled to appeal to indifference reasoning. Okay, so that's why I think the appeal to subjective sea-betterness to defuse the cluelessness worry is just fine, the standard worries about the principle of indifference notwithstanding. Okay. But this was all just so far as the kind of cases that have mostly been discussed to date are concerned. So, so far I've been thinking of these cases like cases of deciding to help an old lady across the road where, sure, it might turn out that there are some completely unforeseeable good consequences and it might by some chance turn out that there are some completely unforeseeable bad consequences. But again, anything that you could say for the one claim could equally easily be said for the contrary claim. And in those cases, we were able to appeal to indifference reasoning to dispose of the cluelessness worry at the subjective level. Here, however, is a different kind of case. So I'm going to call this the new problem of cluelessness, and I think it presents a much more genuine threat of a problem. So in new cluelessness cases, NC for new cluelessness, the following three conditions obtain. This is very abstract. I'll make it more concrete in a minute. So the first condition is that we have some particular concrete reasons to suspect that the unforeseeable consequences of A1 would be substantially and systematically, in some sense, better than those of A2. Second condition, though, the same is true the other way around. We have some other reasons for thinking that the unforeseeable consequences of A2 would be substantially better than those of A1. Furthermore, and crucially, third condition, these reasons, the reasons that seem to favour A1 and the reasons that seem to favour A2, are not just translations of one another, they're not precise analogues of one another, they're rather things of quite different characters, so that there doesn't seem to be any canonical way of weighing these reasons up against one another. In that kind of case, nothing like a principle of indifference is going to be at all plausible by anyone's lights. There's clearly no plausible principle, for example, that says any time the arguments for and against proposition P are complicated and inconclusive, you're rationally required to assign credence a half to P. So the threat of cluelessness feels more genuine here. Okay, so I'm aware that this description here is both pretty abstract and at the same time pretty vague, which is an unhelpful combination. I haven't yet worked out how to get rid of the vagueness, but let me at least get rid of the abstractness so that you can hopefully feel as I do the thing that I'm trying to talk about here. Let me give you an example. To my mind, the most vivid examples of this um, it's an interesting question why these are the most vivid. But the cases in which I feel this most vividly are cases that arise in the context of effective altruism. So as most of you probably know, effective altruists are people who have decided that they want to donate some fixed amount of resource, say some fixed amount of money, with the express aim of doing the maximum possible amount of good in the world impartially considered. 
I might decide, for example, to give away 10% or 20% of my income to what I think are the best charities. If I'm in that predicament, if you're in that predicament, then you're probably paying close attention to the recommendations of independent charity evaluators, that is, meta-charities whose job is to evaluate the activities of first-order charities for cost-effectiveness, evaluate the first-order charities in terms of the question of how much good they do per dollar donated to that charity. One charity that regularly tops the charts of these charity evaluators, so I'm thinking of charity evaluators here like GiveWell, one first-order charity that regularly comes out top in the recommendations is the Against Malaria Foundation, a charity which distributes bed nets in malarial regions. Why does it come out top in the rankings? Well, the rankings are based on calculations, in this case, of things like, based on the empirical evidence we've got, how many lives of children under five do I save per dollar donated to the Against Malaria Foundation? This is an empirical question about, we've got pretty, about which we've got pretty solid empirical evidence. And on the current estimates, for every $3,000 you donate to the Against Malaria Foundation, you save the life of one child under five in a malarial region. Well, if you think of that as extending the life of the child by, let's say, for the sake of argument, 60 years, and suppose these 60 years of life are healthy life years, then that's equivalent to paying $50 per extra healthy life year or quali added, uh, which is a very good investment in comparison with the cost per quali that you get from other health interventions that you might choose to fund with your charity dollars. So it's because this is a good cost-effectiveness ratio that AMF regularly comes out top in the rankings. So far, so good. But then, going back to our thoughts about cluelessness, we'll notice that what we've based this calculation on is evidence regarding, of course, a very small portion of the consequences of my intervention if I intervene by donating additional funds to the Against Malaria Foundation. There are also going to be lots of knock-on consequences of that, in, of that intervention, which necessarily, because it had to have finite complexity, GiveWell's calculation has taken no account of. And some of these things might be things that you genuinely worry about. So let me just sketch one or two briefly. First of all, note that if I save the life of a child, that is, if I, if I extend the life of a child for 60 years, then I at least increase by one the size of the population for the next 60 years. Furthermore, I probably increase the size of the population beyond that because this child whose life I've prolonged is statistically likely themselves to go on to have children. Or if you're not sure that I increase the size of the population in the long run, at any rate, it seems clear I'm going to affect the size of the population in the long run. And now in the light of concerns about overpopulation, you might have some genuine worries about what, whether what I've done is in the long run going to be a good or a bad thing. If, for example, you were seriously concerned that there were too many people in the world, the world is really overpopulated, or the country we're talking about is really overpopulated, then you think at least other things being equal, increasing the population size is a really bad idea. So this now gives you a badness that you're going to have to somehow weigh up against the intrinsic goodness of prolonging the child's life. So that might be one route by which you'd think, oh yes, the direct effects of my intervention are positive, but maybe there's a systematic tendency for large and negative knock-on effects. Other people have worried about the political knock-on effects of effective altruist interventions. So Emily Clough, for example, in an influential article in the Boston Review, has criticised effective altruists for ignoring the political effects of their interventions. So she's worried about things like, well, 
if we, the rich Westerners with our effective altruist hats on, come in and directly fund frontline health services in developing countries, is one effect of that going to be to weaken the tendency of the local population to lobby its own government to provide a decent health service? So could one result of our well-meaning intervention in the long run then be that more children die because the health service doesn't improve as quickly as it otherwise would have? And so on and so forth. Now, it seems overwhelmingly likely that, in aggregate, whatever the truth is, once you've figured out all these issues and worked out whether the general tendency is for the knock-on effects to be positive or negative, it seems very likely that these knock-on effects are going to be large, probably larger than the immediate effects. But we don't know whether they are positive or negative, even in expectation, it seems, in some clear sense. And the reason for this is that the kind of things that we're worrying about here, so the issue of whether the world is overpopulated or rather underpopulated, and the issue of whether the political knock-on effects of effective altruist interventions are real or not, these are things about which there's serious debate. People write whole journal articles and replying journal articles on these kind of things. It's not just a case where there's a bare possibility of some positive effect from intervening, but an equally likely bare possibility of a corresponding negative effect from intervening. So it looks like a case where, in the terms I was trying to sketch on the previous slide, you've got complex reasons of quite different characters competing against one another here in such a way that um, indifference reasoning is not applicable. And also, in contrast to the kind of cases that Lenman and others have discussed, where, yes, you can sort of, with your philosopher's hat on, you can raise the spectre of cluelessness, but honestly, it feels pretty sophistical. To many people, I think, these, what, these cases of what I'm calling the new problem of cluelessness feel genuinely real. Many people, for example, who would otherwise be sympathetic to the effective altruism movement refrain from donating because of precisely these kind of worries, worries which, where a little voice inside their head tells them, I'm insufficiently confident that I would actually be doing good in the long run by donating. Many people who do donate, nevertheless, donate a lot less than they would if they didn't have this, these worries of cluelessness. So if that's right, then in at least some cases, the phenomenon of cluelessness is a real one. And then this motivates the following three questions. Firstly, can we say a bit more about what cluelessness actually is? Earlier, I sort of gave a sketchy account of it in terms of not having the faintest idea in scare quotes. But can we try and make that a bit more precise? What does it really look like? How do we model the situation of a, cluelessness, of a clueless agent? Secondly, to what extent is the problem that we were worrying about actually a real one? So this is easier to answer once we've got a theoretical model of the predicament of a clueless agent on the table. To what extent is it true of clueless agents that they're unable to use considerations of consequences to guide moral decision-making or moral evaluation? And thirdly, once we've got our account of what cluelessness is, can it say anything helpful and illuminating about the source of the deep decision discomfort that many of us phenomenologically feel when we're confronted with a genuine situation of cluelessness. Okay, well, surprisingly little has been said about this. In the literature on old cluelessness, people generally stop at the slogan of not having any idea or being clueless, but don't give you a model of what that, what that actually amounts to. Now, you might think, actually, there's nothing deep going on here. This cluelessness stuff isn't a problem, at least at the subjective level. You'd think that if you thought the predicament of a, the clueless agent was as follows. The agent finds himself in a situation, so this is a sort of Bayesian model. The agent finds himself in a situation where 
he has to somehow settle on his credence function for the propositions that he's interested in. This could be with some guidance from a principle of indifference, or it could be that the principle of indifference isn't very helpful here. In any case, somehow or other, he has to settle on what his credences are. And once he's done that, then the facts about the subjective Seabetterness comparisons between actions will just be straightforwardly determined by his credences, whatever they happen to be. If so, then there doesn't seem to be any particular obstacle to subjective Seabetterness guiding his decisions, even in new cluelessness cases. He just settles his credences. There's no particular reason to think his credences are deeply opaque to him. So he should be in an adequately, ag adequately good position then to see the subjective Seabetterness facts, and so he can use them to guide himself. Where's the problem? And furthermore, if that's the right model of what's going on, it doesn't look as though there's any ground for any particularly deep decision discomfort or decision paralysis here. He should just get on with maximising expected value with respect to his own credences. Of course, maximising expected value with respect to his credences might entail taking different actions from maximising expected value with respect to somebody else's credences. So maybe subjectively speaking, somebody else ought to take different actions, but that's not a problem. And it shouldn't lead to decision paralysis. Okay, so the question is, why isn't that all that's going on in these cases of cluelessness? Sorry, I've been advancing the slide on here and not on there. <laughs> okay, so we are here. So I'm asking, why isn't this the situation we're in? And hence, why isn't it just that there's nothing deep going on here? Well, maybe it is. Maybe that, that is all that there is to say about these cases. But I want to explore, in the spirit of somebody who feels intuitively that there is something deeper going on here, I want to explore two different kinds of models we might, um, might have a look at in an attempt to discover something deeper. So the first of these types of models will have to do with failure of the so-called uniqueness thesis, and the second family of models will relate to the possibility of imprecise credences. Okay, so firstly, suppose the uniqueness thesis fails. What does that mean? The uniqueness thesis is the claim that in any given evidential situation, precisely one credence function is rationally, rationally permitted. All the others are rationally forbidden. That thesis, whatever you think of it in general, looks as though it's very plausibly going to fail in cluelessness cases, precisely because you've got these complex competing reasons and no canonical way of weighing them up against one another. It looks as though there are multiple epistemically rationally permissible ways of responding to these reasons in terms of fixing your credences. If so, then you might think this gives rise to clueless, cluelessness via a phenomenon of uncomfortable arbitrariness. How would that work? Well, the idea would be, okay, the predicament of this clueless agent is that she's rationally required to have some precise credence function, but theory doesn't tell her which one. So she's forced to make some arbitrary decision amongst these rationally permitted credence functions, with theory giving her no guidance, hence an arbitrary decision. So you might think, well, any time you're forced to make some arbitrary decision in order to take action, that's going to lead to a, a feeling of decision discomfort. That's too quick, however. We can see it's too quick by considering the case of Buridan's ass. Okay, so Buridan's ass is in a situation where he faces a decision between two or more actions which he knows to be exactly equally as good as one another. Or you could also consider the situation of a, a subjective Buridan's ass who's choosing between two actions which exactly tie for first place in terms of subjectively expected utility, subjectively expected value. 
burdens us has to make an arbitrary decision. But it doesn't feel at all uncomfortable. We're fine with making arbitrary decisions in those cases of choosing among, among exactly equally good actions. So if there is some decision discomfort arising from the arbitrariness in clueless cases, there must be something more going on in the cases of cluelessness than there is in the case of burdens us. What could that additional thing be? Well, I'm not sure, but here's an inconclusive suggestion. In the case of burdens us, the reason we're not bothered by being forced to make an arbitrary, arbitrary choice is that we know, that at least in expectation, nothing important hangs on our decision. In contrast, that doesn't seem to be quite what's going on in the case of the clueless agent. So the clueless agent rather is in the situation where, however she does resolve her credences, whichever credence function she does pick, she knows in advance that she's then going to have a non-trivial ranking of these possible actions in terms of subjective C-betterness. So the question of which credence function she picks is going to have implications for which action she chooses, and there's a, there's a sense in which she, can, she is committed in advance to the thesis that it matters which one she chooses. So unlike the case of Buridan's ass, this is perhaps a case where she's forced to make an arbitrary decision without any guidance from theory, but with this painful awareness that important things hang on the question of which decision she makes. So that might be one reason why there's some discomfort going on in cluelessness cases. Let me set that aside now and explore the second possibility. So the second possibility would be to say, it's not that in cluelessness cases you're rationally required to have some precise credence function, but you have rational permissions about which one you have. It's rather that you're rationally required to have an imprecise credence state. So an imprecise credal state would be one that can be formally modelled by a set of probability functions rather than a single probability function. Intuitively, you can think of this as an imprecise credence state as one that assigns intervals between intervals of numbers between 0 and 1 to each proposition rather than a single real number to each proposition. Okay, what happens then? Well, now it becomes increasingly hard to remain theory neutral. So just for this section of the talk, I am going to specialise to the case of maximising consequentialism. You could have a parallel discussion for other forms of moral theory, but because the details go differently in different cases, it gets too complex if I try to capture all moral theories in the discussion at one time. So suppose then that in the case of precise credences, we've decided that we're morally required to maximise expected value. How should we extend that view to the case of imprecise credences? And the reason it's not obvious how to extend it is it's not obvious what to say in cases like cluelessness cases where it looks as though you're trying to choose between some acts A1 and A2 where some of the credence functions in your representer, your set of probability functions, are such that with respect to them, A1 is subjectively better than A2. However, there are other credence functions, other probability functions, also in your representer, which are such that with respect to them, it's the other way around. A2 is subjectively better than A1. So we need our moral theory now to tell us what the, rational, what, sorry, what the moral requirements and the moral um, permissions are in cases where our imprecise credences are sort of divided among themselves but, um, on the question of these actions we're contemplating. Well, there are various ways you could extend your decision principle, your moral requirement principle, to the case of imprecise credences. And I think the prospects for capturing something that feels like cluelessness are somewhat different depending on precisely which extension you pick. So let me just briefly canvas a few. 
I'll talk about a liberal approach, a conservative approach, and then a supervaluational approach. Okay, so what would the liberal approach be? So this would be a theory of moral requirement in cases of imprecise credences, according to which you are morally permitted to perform Act A if and only if A maximises expected value with respect to some credence function in your representer. If that's the right criterion of moral requirement, then the thing to say about a clueless agent is if she's feeling clueless between Acts A1 and A2, she's morally permitted to do either. She's morally permitted to do A1, she's morally permitted to do A2. So you might think, oh, so then we understand the sense in which she's clueless. She's clueless in the sense that she's morally permitted to do either of these things and she's forced to make an arbitrary choice. Again, however, it seems doubtful that this really captures the sense of decision discomfort that, according to me at least, seems to accompany cluelessness cases. Because this just looks like a case where theory is telling her that all the actions she's choosing among have the same moral status as one another, namely, they're all rationally permitted. And so the arbitrary decision she has to take among them just looks like the arbitrary decision that Buridan's us has to take, that is, it doesn't look like an uncomfortable decision. They're all, right. They're all morally permitted, so pick whichever one you like and don't worry about it. So for this reason, I think, if you model the clueless agent as having imprecise credences, but you adopt a liberal theory of moral requirement for imprecise credences, you fail to capture the sense of decision discomfort that seems to accompany cluelessness. What about if we go to a conservative theory of moral requirement for imprecise credences? Okay, so this would be an approach that says an act A is morally permitted if and only if that act maximises expected value with respect to not just at least one, but rather all the credence functions, all the probability functions in the agent's representer. If that's the right criterion of moral requirement, then in a case of cluelessness, none of the actions on the table are morally permitted. So this then would be a case of moral dilemma, although somewhat different to the kinds of moral dilemmas that normally get discussed in the moral, in the moral dilemmas literature, because it's not that there's anything kind of obviously particularly morally obnoxious about each of the options. It's just for these technical reasons to do with imprecise credences, they all turn out to be morally forbidden. Could this then generate a sense of decision discomfort that matches what appears to be the phenomenology? Well, it looks as though it has a little bit more hope of doing so than the liberal theory, because at least if all of the actions on the table are morally forbidden, you can see why an agent might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable. On the other hand, this kind of discomfort doesn't feel quite deep enough to me to match the phenomenology of cluelessness, because it's again a situation where the theory is telling you all of these actions have the same moral status as one another. In this case, yes, that status is morally forbidden rather than morally permitted, but it doesn't look as though there's any reason for feeling discomfort, particularly at being forced to choose between these actions, rather than regret at facing the situation in the first place, which is a slightly different thing. So again, I think this case looks relevantly analogous to Buren and Zars, and therefore I don't think the prospects for this combination to capture the phenomenology of cluelessness are particularly promising. Here's the one that I find slightly more hopeful. So I think if you're, if you're tempted by the idea that the right story about epistemic rationality for a clueless agent involves imprecise credences, and you also feel that cluelessness is a real thing and you want to capture the idea of decision discomfort, I think this is the most promising way to do it, or at least of the ones that I've thought of so far. 
So suppose that instead of a liberal or a conservative approach, we have what you might call a supervaluational theory of moral requirement for imprecise credences. So roughly the idea here is going to be, okay, you've got this set of probability functions representing the agent's creedal state. Let's supervaluate over that set of credence functions. So on this theory, act A is determinately morally permitted if it maximizes expected value with respect to all credence functions in the agent's representer. Act A is determinately morally forbid forbidden if it maximizes expected value with respect to no credence function in the agent's representer. Otherwise, it's indeterminate whether or not it's morally permitted. Well, in that case, in cluelessness cases, given the way we're modeling them, for each of the actions among which you feel clueless, it's indeterminate whether or not that act is morally permitted. And now it seems this has at least somewhat more scope for capturing the phenomenology of cluelessness. Because if you're a morally conscientious agent, what you're trying to do is match your action, match your decision to the moral permissibility facts. But your action has to be determinate, so if the moral permissibility facts are indeterminate, then it's at best going to be indeterminate whether or not you've succeeded in matching your action to the facts about moral permissibility. And furthermore, it's not so clear in this case that the kind of arbitrary decision you're forced to make is a shallow kind of arbitrariness like that of Buridan's us. So you might think that if you were thinking, well, hang on, isn't this just yet another case where the theory is telling you that all the acts have the same moral status, namely indeterminately permitted. Um, it's not clear that's the right way of thinking about these cases, though. So at least arguably, indeterminate permissibility is not itself, in the relevant sense, a moral status. We could argue that the things that count as moral statuses in the relevant sense here are just required, permitted, or forbidden. And this is rather a case where it's indeterminate what the moral status of the action is. If so, then we can't make this claim that all the actions have the same moral status. Rather, it's indeterminate whether they have the same moral status as one another. Or it's determinately the case that they don't have the same moral status as one another, but we don't know which way the chips fall. And for those kind of reasons, I think there's more scope with this supervaluational theory than in the liberal or conservative cases of capturing the deep decision discomfort that a clueless agent arguably uh, is arguably appropriate for a clueless agent to feel. Okay, so here I'll just skip over this briefly in the interest of time. But the, here the basic idea is to convince you that new cluelessness was a real thing, I focused on these cases of effective altruism. But actually the structure that I gave you where there are complex reasons for and against the actions and the reasons are of different characters, so it's not obvious how you're supposed to weigh them up, of course extends far beyond cases of effective altruism. It's a thing we face in daily life in basically all realistic decision scenarios. And if you think this is just something that rational agents learn to live with and it shouldn't lead to any deep decision discomfort unless you're a pathological, unless you have some sort of pathological inability to make decisions, then you might be skeptical of my claim that there's this real thing, deep phenomenological decision discomfort that even rational agents feel and that we have to capture. You might think, no, there's no, for, for appropriately rational agents, there's no deep decision discomfort and so we don't want a theory that says there is. And of course, if you think that, then you'll be happy with perhaps the liberal theory or the conservative theory or the simple Bayesian story I started out with. Okay, so in conclusion then, I've argued that so far as the old problem of cluelessness goes, cluelessness with respect to objective betterness is a real thing, but it's not a problem. 
I argued it's not a problem because we only need some route by which consideration of consequences can feed into decision-making and evaluation. And I think that because the appropriate kind of indifference reasoning is innocuous, we don't have cluelessness with respect to subjective betterness in those old problem of cluelessness cases. Lenman argued otherwise because he didn't like the principle of indifference, but I argued that he was going too far in throwing out all forms of indifference reasoning. There seem, however, to be a different kind of case, cases that I've called the new problem of cluelessness, which feel real even at the subjective level, for example, in the cases of effective altruism, and they have quite a different kind of structure to the old problem cases. This raised the question of what's the right theoretical description of cluelessness, and here it seems to me very unclear what the right answer is, but I've explored a few accounts, some of which have more scope than others for capturing a deep phenomenological sense of decision discomfort for rational agents. However, when you reflect on mundane cases of cluelessness, you might think the goalposts have shifted and you might think we don't want to capture a deep phenomenological sense of decision discomfort anyway. Thanks. <laughs>